Well, hey, and welcome to the Quad City Podcast, where we are on mission to make more and better disciples of Jesus everywhere, always. We're so glad you're joining us in that today. Well, before we dive into today's sermon, would you do me a quick favor? Would you go ahead and open your app store and search Quad City Christian Church? Download our app because it's the best way to stay connected with what's happening here at Quad City. If you're new joining us for the first time, click that new here form as we'd love to reach out and connect with you. You could also submit prayer requests and even give on that same app. It's the best way to stay connected here at Quad City. Well, hey, now that that's out of the way, let's go ahead and dive into our sermon from Sunday. We hope you enjoy. It's a good, a good way to celebrate our Sunday together. So glad you're here. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. We are honored that you have chosen to start your week off by worshiping with us uh, here at Quad City Christian Church. I want to welcome all of those who are online from whenever and wherever you are. So grateful to have you with us today. And I also want to welcome in those in Prescott Valley. So grateful to have you with us. If you're a newcomer with us, uh, whether here or in Prescott Valley, our Uh, Pastors would love to connect with you uh, here in Prescott. You can go out into the lobby off to the left. We have a place we call Pastor's Point. I'll be hanging out there after the service. Would welcome you to come by and introduce yourself out in Prescott Valley. Uh, Head to Connection Center. Our our pastors will be hanging out there. Uh, Come by and say hi. Well, today we are continuing a series we kicked off last week where we're calling it, that we're calling Off the Flannel Graph. Now, I just need to ask, how many of you... um, never had the opportunity as a kid to experience the glories of a flannel graph. How many of you, anybody? Oh, see, I feel like I just need to hug all of you. You just need, you're just so missing out. I was told that our Catholic brothers and sisters didn't get flannel graph. Like it was not in the Catholic church. So I just, I, I just feel for you. My heart breaks. Now, for those of you who don't know what a flannel graph is, um, if you grew up in church in the 70s or 80s, there was a high probability that in a stuffy church basement somewhere, there was a little old lady who had a board that looked like this with a box full of amazing felt scenery and figurines, and she'd pull out a children's Bible, and she'd read this story and put the little people on there, and she had really docile tones, and it was so great and comforting and loving, and God came down, and there was a storm, and everybody died. It was great, right? And so you, you hear these stories, right, from, from the flannel graph, right? And so this is the way it went, and so we learned these stories. So for many of us who had this opportunity at some point, there are many stories in the Bible that when we hear the stories, this is what we think about. Now, that, there's some good that comes from that. One of the good things is that somebody cared enough, loved you enough to actually share the story. Like they wanted God's word to be in you, and so that was a good thing. But the problem was that for many of us, when we hear these flannel graph stories, what happened is those, those biblical texts just became for us children's stories. Like, that's what they became. They were just like these 
children's stories. And, and it's kind of like, have you ever, you ever watched like the TV version of Shawshank Redemption or Braveheart? And then you actually watch the real movie? And then you watch the real movie and you're like, oh, I didn't, that's awful. I didn't know that was in there. How could that happen? I don't remember that part, right? Because you got the sanitized TV version. Sure, you get the gist of the story, but you miss out on the, the, the more difficult parts of the story. And that's what happens for many of us with these stories is we get the sanitized flannel graph version of the story and it becomes a children's story, but they're not, they're not kids' stories. They're the word of God for us. And so what we're doing in this series is we're trying to take these stories off of the flannel graph and actually see what the word of God has to teach us because they're not kids' stories. They have meaning and purpose and value for us as adults in 2022. And so we want to dig into the word of God and let it speak to us. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them on. Turn them to Joshua chapter 5. That's where we're going to begin today. So we're going to look at the story of the Israelites going into the promised land in the fall of Jericho. So Joshua in the fall of Jericho. For you millennials in the room who enjoyed your veggie tales, this is the story of Josh and the big wall. Okay? Now, before we get to the story of the fall of Jericho, we need to set the scene. And so to do that, we actually have to kind of back up like 400 years. So God comes to a guy named Abraham and says, I choose you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless the world through you. Come follow me. So Abraham follows God and God leads him out of the land that he was, uh, grew up in and takes him to the land of the Canaanites, which we know as modern day Israel. And God says to Abraham, this is going to be your land. Your offspring are going to live here. And Abraham's like, oh, it's great. Uh, one caveat. Before your offspring come into this land, they're going to spend 400 years as slaves in a land not their own. So you may remember the rest of the story. You got Abraham, then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then a guy named Joseph. So Joseph was, had 12 brothers. His brothers didn't like him very much, and they sold him into slavery. So they ship him off, and he ends up in Egypt. Well, God uses him there. Tells him, hey, there's going to be a huge famine in the land. You better prepare. So Joseph does a smart thing and hoards a bunch of food. And the famine comes and everybody's hungry except the Egyptians. They have food because of Joseph. Well, Joseph's brothers who are living in a land far away here, Egypt has food. And so they come down and they get reacquainted with Joseph. And Joseph invites his whole family to come to Egypt where he takes care of them. So about 70 of them all move to Egypt and everything is good. And they're flourishing because Joseph is a high-powered man in the government taking care of everybody. It was a great part of the story. They all die. The Pharaoh who loved Joseph, he dies. Those 70 people who first came to Egypt, they kept multiplying generation after generation. Another Pharaoh comes in and says, oh my goodness, there's all of these foreigners living in our land. If somebody invades us, they'll probably side with the invaders and try to overthrow us. We have to subdue these foreigners. And they made all of Joseph's family slaves in Egypt. And God kept multiplying them. And over 400 years that 
They just stayed as slaves multiplying in the land of Egypt. Until finally, after 400 years, God comes to the people, specifically in Moses, and says, it's time to get my people out of here. And he shows up in the burning bush through the ten plagues, gets the people out of Egypt to take them back to the land that God had promised Abraham 400 years before. God didn't take them directly to the promised land. They went through the Red Sea. You remember that whole scene. And he spent about two years wandering them through the wilderness, giving them the Ten Commandments, giving them the law, getting them prepared to be their own nation. And they end up on the Jordan River about to cross into the promised land. And that's when Shemuah, Shaphat, Egal, Palti, Gadil, Gadi, Amiel, Sether, Nabi and Guil show up. Do you remember these guys, right? No? There were two other guys with them, Joshua and Caleb. There were 12 spies that Moses said, hey, go into the land and scope it out. Let's see what's there. And these 12 spies go into the land that God had promised Abraham for his offspring and says, They go in and they look and they come back out and say, it is amazing. This land is amazing. It is flowing with milk and honey. There is fruit and harvest. It is like bountiful. It is a glorious land. But these 10 say, but we can't go in there. Like there are giants in the land. They have these huge fortified cities, mighty fighting men. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. They will stomp us to pieces. We can't do this. Only two Joshua and Caleb say, God gave us this land. It's ours. We need to go. I always find it interesting. There are 12 of these. Ten of them you don't remember. Ten of them, the faithless ones, are a footnote in the story of the faithful ones. You've never heard anybody naming their kid after a Gadiel. But you know lots of people named after the two faithful ones. But the people believed the ten and not the two. So they said, we can't do this. We should have just gone back to Egypt. And God says, okay, if you don't want the land I've given you, then you don't get it. All of you, back out to the desert you go. Nobody over the age of 20 is going to get to go into the promised land, save Joshua and Caleb. So for 38 more years, they march around the desert while everybody who walked out of Egypt dies in the desert. So fast forward, 38 years later, Moses himself dies in the desert before he gets to go into the promised land, and Joshua is given the mantle of leadership. Joshua leads the people into the promised land. God does another miracle. The Jordan River was at flood stage, separating the Israelites from the promised land, and God stops the river, and all of these people... Scholars estimate somewhere between 600,000 and a million people have now come out of those 70 for 400 years, and now they're marching into the promised land. God stopped the river so that they could cross over into the promised land on dry land. What God did for the Israelites in the Red Sea, for for their parents and grandparents, God did for this generation, crossing the Jordan into the promised land. And they set up camp on the other side of the Jordan River, right across from the mightiest city in the promised land, the city called Jericho. So, 
If I were going to start the story and invite you to jump into the story of the fall of Jericho, most people would start in Joshua chapter 6. However, I think the good part of the story, maybe my, what I think may be the most important part of the story, actually happens at the end of chapter 5. So, if you've got your Bibles, let's go. Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 13. It says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up, saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? So you get the scene, Joshua maybe doing some praying, maybe strategizing, but he's out walking, seems to be by himself. He's near the town of Jericho. He sees it. It's right there. And as he's kind of walking, got his head down, all of a sudden he looks up. And he's surprised. That's what this phrase here means. He looks up. He's startled. And he sees right there in front of him a man with a drawn sword. You'd be surprised too. I mean, he's about to go into battle. And now he's got this guy in front of him with a sword drawn. Joshua's a military man. So he looks at the guy and says, okay, here's a question for you. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? That's the question. Are you for us or are you for our enemies? We're about to go into battle tomorrow. I just need to know they've got an army. We've got an army. Whose side are you fighting for? Are you for us? Are you against us? And the man's response is telling. He says, neither. What? I ain't for you. And I ain't for them. I'm I'm not here for you. And I'm not here for them. Not neither. As commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. Joshua hits his face. Why did he do that? Because he recognizes in this moment he is no longer in charge. Like every encounter that Joshua has, people bow down to him. I mean, he took the mantle of leadership from Moses himself. Everybody looks up to Joshua, but not not now. Joshua's got his face in the dirt. He is looking up. He takes the posture of submission. And whenever I read this story, I can't help but think that maybe Joshua made the same mistake that we sometimes make. That Joshua had been invited onto this mission that God had. That God was bringing his people back to the promised land. The land that he had promised to Abraham. And Joshua was invited to be a part of this thing that God was doing with his people. But somewhere along the way, maybe it is that Joshua got it confused and thought it was his mission. And so his first question is, are you for me? Are you for us? Are you for them? And this angel who is standing here must have laughed and thought, no, 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 you got this all wrong. I'm not for you. I'm not for them. I am the representative of God here. I am the commander of the army of the Lord here. I don't join you. You join me. I don't join you. You join me. And Joshua hits his face. The real question for Joshua is from the angel, are you for us or are you for them? It was Joshua who needed to pick a side, not the other way around. 
And then again, I just think about how many times in my life I've done the exact same thing. I think about how often I try to get God to join me instead of me trying to join God. Like, God, I've got this great plan. Will you bless it? Like, God, I've got this great vision. Will you endorse it? Like, God, I'm going after this really great guy. Will you help me land him? Like, God, I'm moving in this direction with my finances. Can you fund it? Like, God, God, this is what I'm doing with my life. Are you for me or are you against me? And I think God's saying, no, 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 you got the wrong question here. I'm not the one who needs to pick a side. You do. I mean, how many times do we pray for God to bless this or bless that? In essence, what we're doing in those moments is we're saying to God, are you going to be for this? Will you join us in what we're trying to do here? And again, I think God laughs and says, I'm not here to join you. I've called you to join me. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's just all kind of semantics, right? Whether I join God or God joins me and we're still on the same team, right? No, there's a huge difference. And the huge difference between whether or not I join God or God joins me, the huge difference is who's in command? Who's in charge? Who calls the shots? And Joshua in this moment knows exactly who calls the shots. And it ain't him. Which is why he's face down in the dirt. And listen to his response. Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and he asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Here's a question for us this morning. I want you to Try to think about your prayers for the last month, six months, a year, two years, ten years, however far back you want to go. Think about your prayers for the last however long you want to go. Put a percentage to it. Here's the question. How much or how many or how long, how often are your prayers about trying to get God to do what you want as opposed to How much, how often, how long, or how many of your prayers are about trying to understand what God wants you to do? So how many of your prayers are about trying to get God to do what you want versus how much of your prayer time is spent trying to understand what God wants you to do? What's the ratio? In my very anecdotal personal experience, my guess would be the vast majority of our prayers is about trying to get God to move in our direction, to get God to do what I want, to get God to be for me. Now, don't misunderstand it. We can pray and should pray and ask God for things that's Biblical. We should be doing that. But but more important than trying to get God to move in my direction, more important than that is about positioning my heart to be bent in a posture that's always trying to move in God's direction. 
That's way more important. It's moving my heart to a place of surrender to him, not trying to get him to surrender to me. Like it's why Jesus prayed a prayer that we should pray. He he modeled for us this attitude when he looks at his father and says, not my will, but yours be done. It was a posture of Jesus of surrender. Here's what I want, but more than what I want, I want what you want. So don't do my will. Do your will. Jesus is teaching us that we are responsible to join God in what he's doing, not the other way around. So Joshua hits his face, surrenders to the Lord and says, what message does my Lord have for his servant? You are in charge. You call the shots. You are the master. I am the servant. You are the king. I am the peon. You are the Batman. I am the Robin. What do you want me to do? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Just as God had done with Moses in the burning bush some 40 years before, God says to Joshua in this moment, the ground you're standing on is holy. So take off your sandals. But again, it's mind-boggling to me. Because in our culture as people, like whenever there's something holy or sacred or special, we try to put as many layers between that and common people as we can. Like I remember going to Abraham Lincoln's house in Springfield, Illinois, doing the tour of his house. And you walk through and there's a special carpet that you have to walk on. You're not allowed to get off of this carpet because you stand on that hardwood. Abraham Lincoln stood on that. You're not allowed to stand on that. You stay on the carpet and you walk through the house and every doorway has a barricade and you can look into the room, but you can't go in because Abraham Lincoln sat on that chair. You can't sit on that chair. Like it's special and you're not. So stay behind the barricade. Like you go to a museum and every famous painting is behind glass and they've got guards and security and you don't, because lest you touch it, you mere mortal, this is special, you're not, stay away. Like you go and you see the crown jewels and they've got lasers and glass and bars and we keep people away from things that are special. You're not allowed to, in national parks, they put up railings to keep you from desecrating the sacred spaces. Yet, God says to Joshua, this ground is holy. So take off your shoes. I want you to feel this with your own flesh. I'm inviting you to come skin to skin with me in this moment. This is holy. And I want you to be a part of this. That's our God. He invites us into the holy. He doesn't push him away. So Joshua takes off his sandals. And he shares the battle plan with Joshua. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. 
along with its king and its fighting men. Pause. What does Joshua see that is any different than what he saw yesterday? What does he see that is any different than what he saw an hour ago? What is it that Joshua actually sees? What he sees is the same thing the spies saw 40 years before. They saw a very scary, very big, very fortified city filled with mighty fighting men. That's what he saw. I mean, he's standing there looking at this city. That's what he sees. And then he turns around and he looks at his army, which are made up of the children and grandchildren of a bunch of slaves who've never picked up a sword in their life. That's what he sees. And what did he see? He probably saw a city that looks something like this. Over the last hundred years, there have been three major excavations of the city of Jericho. They know exactly where it is. They've dug it all up. They've done three of these. This is what they've found. It's a city, about nine acres in size. The circumference of it, if you were to march around it, it's about a a mile to go all the way around this thing. Now, what you can't see from this angle, let me give you a cross cut. What they found as they've done these excavations, this is the walls of Jericho. So there's this foundation wall at the very bottom. That foundation wall is somewhere between 12 and 15 feet high. On top of that foundation wall is a mud brick wall, which is six foot thick and about 20 to 26 feet tall. There's then this berm that goes up. Then there's another mud brick wall, again, It is six foot thick, 20 to 26 feet tall. You can't really see it because it's a little grainy, but if you look down here in the bottom right-hand corner, these are the soldiers to get a little bit of the scale. From From the bottom of that foundation wall to the top of this mud brick wall is 46 feet. 46 feet. That's what, that's what Joshua sees. But look at what God says. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred. No one went out. No one came in. And the Lord said, the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and fighting men. See? No. I don't see. I see a giant fortified city. That's what I see. God speaks as if it's already done. God's speaking in the past tense. See, I have delivered Jericho. I've delivered them into your hands. See, I don't need to know who needs to hear this today. But you need to stop focusing on what you see and you need to start focusing on what God says. Like some of you, your your focus is on what you see and you're neglecting what God has said. He's made promises to you that are as good as true because he has said it. Nothing you have ever seen is more true than what God has said. So the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once, 
with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear the sound, a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, and then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up. Everyone straight in. So here's what I want you to do, Joshua. Take all your men, march them around the city every day for six days, one time. And then on the seventh day, march them around seven times, blow the trumpet, give a shout, and the whole thing's going to fall down. Okay, imagine you're in the army, and Joshua comes to you and says, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. Tomorrow, we're going to battle. Take your swords, but you're not going to use them. Um, but you're going to need some hiking shoes. And they march around the city. And then they go back to camp. Like, that's it. That's the whole thing. The next day, they get up and they march around the city. And they go back to camp. They march around the city and go back to camp. Day seven, they march around seven times. And they blow the horns, blow the shofar, blow the trumpets. That's what they do. And when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. Meaning the breach was, all the, the walls fell straight down. And again, you can go read about it yourself. The excavations of Jericho reveal that what happened was that mud brick wall on the top collapsed slid down that embankment, hit that other mud brick wall, which collapsed. And both of those walls came and essentially filled all of the space, created a ramp up that foundation wall. So when it says that everyone went up straight in, it created a ramp all the way around the entire city. And the Israelites won the victory. It's an amazing story. The question is, so what? What's the point? Great story. What's it got to do for us? Why would, why would God give them the victory in this way? Like, they're going to fight a hundred more battles in the, in the promised land. And they're going to use their swords and they're going to go to battle. And they're, it's all the strategery of every other warfare of the day. That's how they're going to win these. Why not do that here? Why, why the miraculous collapsing of the walls? Why the marching and the ark and the horn blowing to get the victory? Why? Because God wanted the people of Israel to understand. And he wanted all of the people in the promised land who were going to hear about this battle. He wanted them to understand this was God's victory. This was the work of Almighty God. This battle was not won because Joshua was a great leader. This battle was not won because they had great military strategy. This battle wasn't won because they had a highly trained army. This victory did not get accomplished because they had an artillery full of advanced weaponry. None of that stuff was true. God wanted to leave no doubt this victory came from him. In other words, this is God saying, I didn't join Joshua, Joshua joined me. And I think God wants us to have that same posture. 
which means for us that we got to change our we got to change our tone with God. Instead of saying, God, I've got this great plan, will you bless it? We say, God, I know you have a great plan. Help me understand it. Instead of saying, God, I've got this great vision, will you endorse it? We say, God, I know you are the giver of great visions. Reveal it to me. Instead of saying, God, I'm after this great guy, will you help me? We say, God, I am content with whatever relational status you have for me. God, I've got these directions I'm going in my finances. Can you fund it? No, no, no. We say, God, you've given me how I should direct my finances. Help me obey it. God, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Are you for me or are you against me? No, no, no. We say, God, I give you my life. Do with it what you will. It is an act of surrender. Because I don't join him. I'm sorry. I don't ask him to join me. I join him. We fall on our face like Joshua. And we say, what message does my Lord have for his servant? So here's the question I want to leave you with today. In what areas are you still trying to get God to join you instead of surrendering yourself and joining him? In what areas are you still calling the shots and then calling out hoping God will bless it? Where where have you been going your own way and doing your own thing and simply trying to drag along God for the ride? We want to take a posture as a church and as a people of hope and hand and surrender. God, I'm not asking you to join me. I want to join you in whatever you're doing. Not my will, but yours be done. Father, I pray today that you would reveal to us where it is that we're still trying to maintain control, to do our own thing and get your stamp on it. And instead today, I pray that we would open up our hands and hand it all to you. And that we would be willing as Joshua to do the thing that sounds ridiculous. It's so foolish. But because you say it, we'll do it. Because what you say is more important than what we see. So we want to surrender ourselves to you. We give all that we have. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. And thank you so much for joining us today here at the Quad City Podcast. Hey, our desire is that we would each look more and more like Jesus every day, week, month, and year. And we know that that doesn't just come from learning more about him and his word, but by actually applying it to our lives today. We hope that you take this message that you heard today and apply it to your life in a way that makes you honor him. Well, thanks again for joining us today. Be sure to download the Quad City app and we will see you again next time.